0: Hi friends, Pastor Brian asked that I preach today as he and his wife Karen have slipped away to celebrate their recent wedding anniversary. So just for fun, since he's not here, let's see the picture that Karen shared on Facebook. Many of you know that just last week, Brian shared that he's entering his final year as our senior pastor, but that he's excited to continue to serve and feels he has at least 40 good sermons in him for the coming year. (laughs) But apparently, Revelation 11 was not one of them, so he gave it to me. Now, after I did my initial research in the scriptures, and by that I mean reading it through almost every day and each time feeling more confused than the day before, I then opened a couple of commentaries. And the first line I read in each one was, (laughs) This is perhaps the most difficult section of Revelation to interpret. Ha! Thanks, teaching team. Well, for the last few weeks, I've been clinging to the words from the very first chapter in Revelation. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So with that, let's invite the Holy Spirit to lead us as we seek to understand and learn from this mysterious vision given to John. Please pray with me. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we gather this day to worship you and to learn from you. Open our minds and our hearts, our eyes and our ears to hear and see, feel and know what you would have us to learn today. Send us from this worship center with renewed vision and commitment to be your witnesses to the world. And we pray this in the name of the one who sits upon the throne, the one who alone is worthy, our master, our Lord, our King, Jesus Christ. Amen. All joking aside, this has indeed been a fascinating series on the book of Revelation as we've sought to understand what we find as John pulls back the curtain of heaven and shows us the vision he was given. Pastor Brian kicked off the series by helping us understand that the book of Revelation was from God, about Jesus Christ, to the church, for the world. Then Pastor Tim encouraged us not to get caught up in the language and the images of doomsday scenarios, but rather lean into the reality that the Apostle John is showing us over and over again that Jesus is the Savior of the world and that we can live in the hope of divine deliverance. Over the last two weeks, Brian pointed out that Revelation has broken up by interruptions of worship. He said, worship sends us out into the world to live and love like Jesus, and that the church is still the vehicle through which Jesus chooses to work. The church is good for the world when it's faithful to its mission to love like Jesus. So this week, we're exploring the theme of witness for the world. Let's go back to the opening verses of chapter 11. John writes, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers. But exclude the outer court, do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for forty-two months. Like much of Revelation, There are multiple thoughts as to what significance there is in these opening verses about measuring the inner sanctuary and the trampling of the outer court by the Gentiles. The first thing to note is the temple is symbolic, not literal. Scholars agree that John was writing Revelation around the year 90 A.D., and the temple, seen here in a 1-20 to scale model of what it would have looked like in Jesus' day, was destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D. Needless to say, there were some who hoped that John's mention of the temple meant it would soon be rebuilt, but that never happened, and the Western Wall is all that remains to this day. The general consensus is the reference to the measuring of the temple of God and the altar, or the the inner sanctuary, means that God is promising the eternal preservation of the Church, the people of God, the Christians, both Jew and Gentile. And as for the outer court, one commentator wrote, The trampling of the outer courts then depicts the rule of the evil one. But the next few verses are the crux for our discussion today, for here is where we are introduced to two witnesses. So I'm continuing at verse 3. And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so it will not rain during the time they are prophesying, and they have power to turn waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now we're going to start having some fun. There are so many symbolic messages in these four verses that it's kind of like blowing bubbles on a breezy spring day as they all float off in different directions. Something I'll definitely be doing later this afternoon with the grandkids. So let's see what we can find when we look closely. First, we have two witnesses. Why two? Well, in the ancient world, there had to be at least two witnesses for something to be declared true. Jesus refers to this when speaking to the Pharisees about himself. John recorded this conversation in his gospel, chapter 8, beginning at verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him, Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus responded, In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am the one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Jesus also modeled the importance of two witnesses when he sent his disciples and followers out into ministry in teams of two. Also important to note, the phrase two witnesses does not necessarily stand for two individual witnesses, which we will see as we move on. So we have two witnesses, and they will prophesy and be clothed in sackcloth. Now I used to teach an Old Testament survey of sorts to my students. When I would get to the lesson on the prophets, I would always ask them to define prophet for me, and they almost always said, someone who can predict the future. Well, they weren't necessarily wrong. Webster's Dictionary defines the verb prophesy as something that connotes inspired or mystic knowledge of the future, especially as the fulfilling of divine threats or promises. The New Bible Dictionary defines a prophet as a person who spoke for God and communicated God's message courageously to God's chosen people, the nation of Israel. But prophets are not just in the past, nor is their prophecy limited to predictions of the future. A prophet is someone who, under the power and leading of the Holy Spirit, speaks truth into a situation. Sometimes that truth comes with a call to repentance a word of rebuke or warnings of possible consequences. The fact that these two witnesses are clothed in sackcloth indicates that they are in mourning, which could mean repentance is involved in their testimony. Given that John has just recorded letters to the seven churches with some stern words of where they are each falling short, as Brian pointed out last week, Perhaps this means these witnesses are prophesying or bearing witness to the truth of or their need for repentance. So hold on to that thought because the symbols are about to come fast and furious. Now, John identifies the two witnesses as two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If you have your Bible with you or are following along on your phone, you'll see that there's a note that references us back to the Old Testament minor prophet Zechariah, who was born into a priestly family and was a prophet to those returning to Jerusalem from the Babylonian exile. He was also prophet to the governor of the region, Zerubbabel, who was working to rebuild the temple. God spoke to Zechariah through a vision, and it's eerily similar to John's vision in Revelation. Listen to Zechariah's vision recorded in chapter 4. The angel who talked with me returned and woke me me up like someone awakened from sleep. He asked me, What do you see? I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lamps on it with seven channels to the lamp. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on the left. I asked the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? He answered, Do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I replied. So he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Then I asked the angel, What are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? He replied, Do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I said. So he said, These branches are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. Now, the two who were anointed to serve at the time of Zechariah were Zerubbabel, the governor of the region, who was actually the grandson of the last king of Judah before the exile. He was a royal prince, and he'd been tasked with the rebuilding of the temple. And the second person who was anointed to serve was the high priest. And the man at that time who was the high priest was Joshua. So we have a governor or prince Zerubbabel and the high priest Joshua as our two witnesses. One commentator wrote, the whole import of Zechariah's vision was to strengthen the two leaders, Joshua and Zerubbabel, by reminding them of God's resources to vindicate them in the eyes of the community as they pursued their God-given tasks. Now, If we consider the two witnesses of Revelation pointing us to Zerubbabel, the former prince and governor, and Joshua, the high priest, they could serve to symbolize the kingdom and priests. Where else do we hear that phrase, kingdom and priests, both in the Old and New Testament—first, when God spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai after the exodus from Egypt? God said, this is what you are to say to the descendant of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although for the although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." And then Peter writes to the believers scattered throughout the region due to persecution. For you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, that you may declare the wonderful deeds of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So while it is clear there is a symbolic connection between Joshua and Zerubbabel and these two witnesses in Revelation, there's more. So let's keep going. The next set of symbols point us to two more saints from the Old Testament. First, we have a nod to Elijah. And yes, this is a statue of Elijah. I took that picture on the top of Mount Carmel. Elijah was a prophet who spoke for God during the reign of King Ahab. The king had married a woman named Jezebel who did not worship God. She worshipped the false god of Baal. She had taken the whole kingdom of Israel with her. And in 1 Kings 18, Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal to a contest on Mount Carmel. They were to each call down fire from heaven to burn a sacrifice. The prophets of Baal could not do it. But Elijah did. Fire comes from their mouths of the witnesses in Revelation 11. This recalls that occasion when Elijah called out to God and God sent fire down from heaven to defeat the prophets of Baal. And then in verse 6 in Revelation, power to shut up the heavens so it will not rain. Well, in 1 Kings 17, we read of the time when Elijah declared to King Ahab, there would be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except by his word. So both of these acts were in judgment of King Ahab and his pagan wife Jezebel, who worshipped Baal instead of the God of Israel. Now, the rest of verse 6 in chapter 11 reminds us of Moses. For Moses was called by God to deliver the Israelites from slavery in Egypt and was given the power to perform powerful signs in order to convince the Pharaoh to let them go. The witnesses in Revelation 11 had the power to turn water into blood as well as to strike the earth with every kind of plague. Well, both of these signs are reminiscent of Moses' confrontation with Pharaoh before they were allowed to leave Egypt. So what could we learn from this? Well, Elijah, in essence, symbolizes the prophets, and Moses symbolizes the law. For after they left Egypt, God gave Moses the law in the form of the Ten Commandments. So where in the New Testament do we see Moses and Elijah? At the Mount of Transfiguration, which most scholars believe to be Mount Tabor. When John, the writer of Revelation, along with Peter and James, climbed up the mountain with Jesus and they experienced a miraculous presence of Elijah and Moses descend upon them in a cloud to speak with Jesus. Now, a quick side note. If you remember that story, Peter was so awed by this experience, he wanted to build three shelters there and just remain on the mountaintop and not return to the valley. And that valley that's in the foreground, by the way, is the Valley of Armageddon. Interesting that we can often be tempted to remain where we've experienced God in a powerful way rather than head back into what could be a troubled valley. But how else can we bear witness to the people who need Jesus if we don't allow our worship of God to send us back out into the world, as Brian pointed out a few weeks ago, to live and love like Jesus? Now, back to our symbols of Elijah for the prophets and Moses for the law. When does Jesus refer to law and prophets? When he was talking with some Pharisees and an expert in the law approached him, trying to trick him. "'Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law?' Jesus replied, "'Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments.'" And our visionary, John, in all of his other writings, speaks a lot about Jesus' call to love. In what we call the Upper Room Discourse, John records five chapters of teaching Jesus gave the disciples on the last few days and nights before his arrest. John records one of Jesus' key instructions in chapter 13. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples, if you love one another. So our witnesses in Revelation 11 remind us of the law and the prophets, the sum of which Jesus tells us is to love, to love God and to love others, and that by this, this is how we will be known as his disciples. So what we've got so far In identifying the two witnesses in Revelation 11, are the priest Joshua and the governor, former prince Zerubbabel, or we have, it could be Moses and Elijah, but there's still another layer of meaning in John's vision for the two witnesses. So let's look for a moment at verses 7 through 12. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. Pastor Tim, a few weeks ago, gave us a conclusion from his study that the beast to which John refers was actually the Roman emperor at the time. And we know that under that emperor, men and women who bore witness to the truth of who Jesus is were publicly killed for their testimony. People mocked him, heaped insults on them, even after their deaths. So in this revelation scene we have here, the refusal to bury the bodies of the witnesses for three and a half days was evidence of their disdain for the believers. But then John tells us that God breathed new life into them and then called them into heaven in a cloud. And this is what leads scholars to another theory of the meaning or identity of the two witnesses. We now have Enoch and Elijah, the two Old Testament people who are recorded that neither experienced physical death, but rather were gathered into God's presence in some miraculous way. We find Enoch in Genesis chapter 5, in the genealogy of Adam's descendants. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more, because God took him away. The writer of the book of Hebrews refers to Enoch among the list of saints in chapter 11. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. Enoch had walked with God faithfully. He was someone with whom God was pleased. And then we have Elijah again, and this part of his story picks up right after he'd had that victory over the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. He had then fled into the wilderness to escape the vengeance of Jezebel, the wife of King Ahab. And it was here in the wilderness that God spoke personally to Elijah, not in the wind, not in an earthquake, not in a roaring fire, but in a still, small voice. The voice of God told him to go and find Elisha and anoint him to succeed him as prophet. And then later in 2 Kings, we read that as they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elijah, Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Enoch walked with God. Elijah spoke personally with God. In their own way, each man bore witness to the truth of God. And yet the writer of Hebrews notes that these two And other Old Testament saints, men and women, were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what was promised. Not unlike the disciples who walked and talked with Jesus for three years. Jesus had promised something to them before he left them. One of those nights in the upper room before his arrest, he had said that when the advocate comes— whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you must also testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. Now, let's see if we can make some sense of all these different symbolic references. Just like we sometimes are able to capture a bubble And as we do, and we look closely, the light refracts through the moisture and displays the rainbow of colors. Now, that's one of the only things I remember from high school physics, and I'm sure I didn't say it right, but just humor me. So in the same way, we're going to look closely at all those different pieces and see if we can't find a bigger, more beautiful picture. So let's sum up what we've learned. Two witnesses—could be Governor or Prince Zerubbabel and the High Priest Joshua—symbols of the kingdom and priests, and Peter tells the early church that they are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, that we may declare the wonderful deeds. Or the prophet Elijah and the lawgiver Moses— Symbolizing the law and the prophets, summed up by Jesus in love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. This sums up the law and the prophets. By this the world will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Or Enoch and Elijah, ones who walked with God, talked with God, and were with God. And Jesus said, you will testify about me, for you were with me from the beginning. What I see when I look at this summary is this—the witnesses are the Church, not the organized institution of the Church, but rather the living body of Christ, of which Jesus is the head and of which persons from every people and nation, tribe and language who have responded to Jesus' invitation to follow Him are members. That includes everyone watching online today. Wherever you are who is a Christ follower, we are all witnesses. And just like these two witnesses in Revelation, we have access to the power of God to testify to the life-transforming love of Jesus because He fulfilled His promise the promise the Old Testament saints did not see, the promise Jesus gave His disciples in the upper room before He went to the cross, the promise He reminded them of right before He ascended to heaven to be with the Father. And Jesus said to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And 10 days later, It happened on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost is one of the top three festivals in the Jewish tradition, along with the Festival of Tabernacles in the fall and Passover in the late winter. People would come from all over the known world to celebrate these festivals in the temple in Jerusalem. Now, when we were in Jerusalem a few weeks ago, our guide, Ariel, spoke of how Israel is like a land bridge connecting three continents, Europe to the north and west, Asia to the north and east, and Africa to the south. And it was all I could do not to blurt out right there on the bus, I know! That's why Pentecost is God's brilliant mass communication plan. See, the believers were gathered once again in the upper room when the Holy Spirit descended upon them—all of them—and they were instantly given the ability to speak about the good news of Jesus, His life and love, in languages they had never learned. And as they spilled out into the streets, the visitors heard this news in their own languages. And guess what happened when they returned home after the festival was over? They bore witness to what they had seen and heard, and the gospel began to spread from that very moment in every direction, north, south, east, and west of Jerusalem. Now, I know you've been sitting there wondering if I was ever going to mention it. Yes, today is Pentecost, our third great holiday, and if it weren't for what happened on Pentecost, we would not have the power, the courage, the nerve, the words— Or the wisdom to be witnesses the world needs. Commentator Craig Keener wrote this, that God empowered His church with prophetic anointing at Pentecost. That anointing's focus is the power to witness. Are you still wondering who the witnesses are? They're you! The two witnesses in Revelation are not random symbols of past heroes. The two witnesses, no matter which connection you make, all point to us, each of us, members of the body of Christ, the church. And we are called to bear witness to what we have seen and heard to be true about Jesus' love for every people and tribe and language and nation, no matter what the cost. Keener also wrote Revelation calls us to prepare ourselves as a martyr church. The moment we become Christ's followers, we forfeit our lives for the work of the kingdom. Yet for the most part, we have failed to prepare ourselves and our fellow servants for this calling. We must be spirit-empowered witnesses to the world, ready to pay any cost and utterly dependent on God's power to accomplish His purposes. So do you want to live a life that's significant? Do you want to make a difference? Do you want to be a Spirit-empowered witness to the world? Then today, for the first time or for the 50th time, invite the Holy Spirit to ignite in you a renewing fire, to blow a fresh breeze through your heart and mind, to give you the words and wisdom to share the truth about what you have seen and heard. Spirit-empowered witnesses watch for opportunities in their workplaces, offices, the grocery store, neighborhoods, schools, sports fields. Because if you haven't noticed living in the Boston area, God has brought the world to our very doorstep. Friends, until Jesus returns, this is what we're supposed to be doing. Don't get discouraged by the troubles in the valley. The Spirit is at work all around us, in us, and through us, bearing witness to the world that there is hope and a future. If you don't know how to start, go to grace.org slash serve, and you'll find a whole host of ways to practice being a witness both inside and outside the walls of the church building. Spirit-empowered witnesses are those who walk with God, who love as Jesus loved, and who serve as a royal priesthood, declaring the marvelous deeds of Him who called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Amen.